Today we are wrapping up our series called Guide Rails. Um, due to time, I'm just I'm not going to run through the whole series, but you can go check it out online or there's uh, lists of them around our building. Guide Rails are super important and they're super important for you to understand about who we are as a church. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to wrap up this last one. It's called We Will Be Known for What We Are For. Uh, but before we do that, let me pray. God, we thank you so much for this opportunity we have, this space we have to clear hearts and minds of distraction and focus on you. It's not something that is readily available to us in today's world where we're constantly being driven by our busyness or sometimes the expectations of others. Uh, but here we are gathered here and what we need is not more me. We just need more of you. I pray that um, your grace would just be abundantly clear to all of us this morning that your presence and your heart for us would be unmistakable. You're for us. And uh, it's an incredible thing to think about. So we just thank you for this morning. Pray that you would help us to see more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So good to be back with you. I'm so thankful for Rick bringing a word last week and uh, and Jim a couple weeks ago, and now you're stuck with me for a while. <laughs> and the title of today's talk is, We Will Be Known by what, for What We Are For. It's easy. In today's world, everybody is loudest about what they're against. It seems like that's how we want to put our stake in the ground in today's culture. Everybody's against something, and everybody wants everybody to know what they're against. But what's way more powerful is knowing what you're for, knowing what God is for. And as a church, we don't want to be, we want to be known for what we're for. We're going to jump into a passage in John chapter 8, if you want to look there in your Bibles. But before we get there, I kind of like have to tell you a little story um, that is not, not the best <laughs> kind of story. Like, uh, <laughs> I don't know how comfortable you will be with it. This is quite the setup, right? Like, um, I have to tell you a story about when I got caught <laughs> doing something. And uh, if you're new here, that might be a little shocking and you may be a little curious. If you've been around for a while, you're probably nervous about what I'm going to say. <laughs> but fear not, it was fifth grade and kickball was king. I grew up in Schuylkill County, right here in Cresona. And I, I love Schuylkill County. I love Schuylkill Countyans. I believe they have big hearts and they're amazing, hardworking, incredible people. I just love the people of Schuylkill County. I'm one of, one of them. And uh, I remember I would walk over to Cresona Elementary School and kickball is all we cared about. It's all I cared about. And during my fifth grade year, we had organized... Um, kind of amongst other fifth graders, a little class kind of competition. Every day we would go out to the kickball field, which was in the parking lot, and we would play another uh, fifth grade class and battle it out, and I would always end up being king, because, no, not always. But this was like all I cared about as a little fifth grader. This was like what made school fun. I didn't care about math or English, and maybe you're like, we can tell. I really cared about kickball, and I was a very competitive kid, and this was like the highlight of our day, and I remember going out one 
morning and gathering on the kickball court with our buddies from another class, and it was going to be an epic match. We were all so excited about it, but somebody did not give the new long-term sub the memo. And this lady, I don't know her name, I don't want to know her name, (laughs) rolled out onto that court like she owned the place. It was her first day (laughs) with all of her little kindergartners, those little snot-nosed kindergartners in tow, whole crowd of kindergartners surrounding her like like a flock of, I don't know, something infectious. They wander out onto our court and she, in a stern fashion, looks at all of us and says, get out of here. <laughs> We're, we tried arguing with her, like, no, you don't understand, lady. We don't even know who you are. You got all these little kids. You can play anywhere with these little kids. We need the kickball court. You get out of here. <laughs> that did not work. So eventually, she shooed us away and as we were walking away, all I could feel was bitterness and anger welling up in my heart and maybe I had some issues as a young child. Then I turned around with her back to me, surrounded by her little minions. I gave her not the kind of salute that is appropriate for pastors to talk about. <laughs> like if, you're, if you look at your hand and you pick out what the worst finger would be <laughs> to show somebody I wasn't telling her she was number one, but I was kind of telling her, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) You may be like, this is my last week here. (laughs) My pastor, when he was in fifth grade, flipped off a teacher. And I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those snot-nosed little kindergartner kids tugging on her jacket, saying, Miss, whatever your name is, turn around. And she turned around to catch me before I could pull that bad boy back into my pocket. And all of a sudden, the face, my face changed from one of anger and disgust to one of like, oh no. See, my dad was the dad who drug me into the teacher's kind of like little meetings and he would announce this to every teacher I ever had. Hey, listen, by the way, you have permission to spank my kid. All I ask is that you call me so I can spank him when he gets home too. Like, that's how we roll. You may not agree with that. That's the childhood I lived in. That is what makes this. (laughs) That's why my shoes aren't tied right now. It's all because of that (laughs) trauma. And uh, so I knew I was in big trouble. Talk about a humiliating walk of shame, right? Like, I knew. I was toast, man. Fifth grade, whipping the teacher the finger. I marched over there. I don't think she... She was so angry, I don't think words were coming out of her mouth. She kind of grabbed me by the arm, drug me down to the principal's office. I missed like months of recess. Back then you had to stand against the wall in the hallway outside the principal's office, just staring at it. You kids have no idea. (laughs) I had to walk into the principal's office and sign the paddle. You guys ever? No, none of you ever had to do that. too young and too well behaved for that kind of thing. He made that. I remember those. <laughs> I remember those days, man, and, and how like I was caught. I was caught. There's no like, there's no unwinding something like that. It's public, it's out there. See, a lot of our hidden sins, like we keep tucked away, well hidden and covered up so that no one in our lives really know about it. Like your spouse might not even know about the deepest kind of like secrets or sins that you kind of 
have in your past or maybe even in your present. Like, we try so hard to like hide those things, but then these moments come because they always come where what's kept secret in the darkness sees the light of day and is exposed. And all that shame and all that guilt and all that burden we're left alone to carry and it's exhausting and hard and quite frankly we can't, there's nothing in us of ourselves that is built to handle those kind of things. And all we are kind of left with is the mercy of others and the grace of God. As tough as that walk of shame is, imagine you getting caught in front of a bunch of kindergartners in your worst, worst moment, or maybe some of you have kind of lived that and some of the secrets that you have had have been exposed at some part of your past. And I don't want you to, like, here's what you gotta know. There's not anybody in here that is innocent, so I'm not casting judgment, but maybe you can relate to that kind of story or maybe you've just happened to get away with not getting caught for a really long time. Um, but nothing kind of compares to the story in John chapter 8 and verses 1 through 11. There's a story that is called The Woman Caught in Adultery. I could think of a lot of different better titles in my mind that kind of capture more of what God's saying in it. But I get, I get why it's titled like that. It's kind of like a dramatic, kind of crazy and important story. Now, if you're looking in your Bible, there's a chance that it's written in, it's probably written in italics in your Bible, and that's just simply because the earliest manuscripts we have um, of the pieces of the New Testament don't include this story in, but some later, those, those manuscripts are all written kind of like in the time, in, in the lifetime of Jesus' closest followers. But there was enough of these, this story scattered throughout other manuscripts in the Gospels that when they were kind of compiling what we know of today and hold in our hands as the Bible, um, they were very cautious to protect the integrity of this book. That's why it has outlasted all of its critics. That's why it's still here. It's just, it's because this isn't just a book. People have tried to kill it and burn it and dispose of it and point out its flaws or inconsistencies, and yet here it still stands, this beautiful, incredible, alive gift from God. Now, what's interesting about this is the story is um, in here, and it's in italics, just to make that point clear. Like, hey, we believe this is the word of God, but we also want to note, like, there's some manuscripts that don't have it. I love the transparency of that. If you've read your Bible, you know that God is into transparency. The story kind of starts off in a terrible fashion. Jesus is sitting in the t temple courtyard outside of their place of worship where they would often gather, and he's teaching, and he sits down to teach, and a large crowd comes around him to listen to the words he was teaching. It's not uncommon for Jesus. And when he taught, he always gathered a crowd. But something different was happening across town this day. You see, some of the teachers and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were upset at Jesus. They were not liking the way this whole Jesus story was going. People were talking about him as the Messiah, and their power and their control and their religion was being threatened and that will make all kinds of people furious. They're super mad at Jesus, and so they kind of 
hatched this scheme. It's a terrible scheme. It's a terrible plan. All set up to trick Jesus. They had found out about this woman and this man who were having an adulterous affair. And so they set up this scene where they caught them in the act, shooed the guy out the back door and drugged this poor woman, broken as she was. I don't know how she ended up there. Like, clearly some bad decisions were being made. Clearly there was a lot of hurt that was gonna be a result of maybe these actions. Clearly she was coming from, they were coming to this place from a very broken in need of God, kind of like, you can't fill the hole in your heart with other people realization. For whatever reason, they ended up in this unsavory situation, how crazy to have the door kicked in, and all of a sudden, the religious leaders are in there, shooing him off and grabbing her. They weren't very respectful of women in that day. They had very little tolerance for what they would view as public sin. And so they probably in a very unsavory fashion drugged this poor woman through the streets in front of her neighbors, in front of her friends, in front of people that knew her. Her deepest, darkest secret, her biggest wound on display for everyone to see. I don't know how you would feel. How would you feel? If your biggest, darkest secret was drug out in front of all your friends to see. My guess is, and we don't know this from Scripture, but using a little imagination and understanding of the culture and the time that this was written in, it's probably a pretty humiliating rough walk. I wouldn't be surprised if people threw insults at her on the walk as they drug her through these dusty streets, half-naked and humiliated. I wouldn't be surprised if they were dragging her by her hair through these streets, maybe kicking and shoving and punching her along the way, saying all kinds of really terrible things. I wonder what she was thinking as I think about her story. I wonder what was going through her mind in those moments. The mix of humiliation, pain, anger, fear. I don't know what was happening, but eventually they got to the temple of all the places for this sick display to happen. These religious leaders chose to try to corner Jesus in the temple courtyard in front of all of her friends there to worship. They drag her into this scene and before Jesus, they throw her in front of him on the ground and they challenge Jesus with this in John chapter 8, it says in verse 4, they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in an act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Here in this temple courtyard, 
this insane, this, I don't know why they chose that. Did they feel like that was a safe place for this horrific scene? I, I need you to know that this is not a safe place. This is not a safe place for self-righteousness and hypocrisy. This is not a safe place for you to play God. <laughs> this is not a safe place for spiritual manipulation and abuse and all of these sick things that now, centuries later, somehow, and I'm sorry for this because it disgusts me, are creeping into churches. Shame on us. This will not, as long as I am here, be a safe place for this kind of ridiculous, self-righteous, awful scene. You see, they knew all the letters of the law, but they didn't really know God. They conveniently pickpocketed a few verses from the law and left out a whole ton of other verses about how we should treat people. They conveniently, for instance, just to name one, left out in their thinking and in their action the entire book of Hosea. And I don't know if you know, I'm sorry, I'm getting hot. I don't know if you know anything about the book of Isaiah, but the entire book of Isaiah, God chooses his prophet Hosea and tells him to marry a prostitute so that he could demonstrate through their relationship how much God loves sinful people. How incredible is that? They left out passages like Hosea 6, 6 that says, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I'm going to bring the temperature in my throat down a little bit right now. <laughs> Conveniently left out those parts. You can know all the stuff the Bible says, but not know the heart of the one who gave us the Bible. You can know all the rules and still miss the heart of God. We are not interested here in being a morally superior people or being better at religion than other people. We're not interested in that here. What we are interested in is knowing this Jesus and becoming a little bit more like him every day. That's what we are interested in here. There's a horrific scene, man. Like, whew. They conveniently left out those things. And when I think about that, and it's tempting to kind of like conveniently leave out stuff, I'm reminded of what it says in John chapter 4, where it says, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. How convicting is that? Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It goes on in verse 12. It's a great passage. You should read 1 John chapter 4 on your own sometime this week. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. These people were talking about how they were for God. But not everyone who says they are for God actually knows the true God. Not every time somebody says, I'm for God. Are they actually for God? These guys were not for God. They were not for the things that God cares about. They were not for, 
for helping this woman find healing and forgiveness and grace. They were not for helping her under, you know what she heard in the actions of the religious people? God hates you is what she heard in the actions of the religious people. God is against you. And really, all they were truly displaying was how against Jesus they actually were. They raised this, ex, this accusation against, they didn't care about the sin. Don't fool yourself. They didn't care about the sin. They cared about looking better than everybody else and looking better than Jesus. If they really cared about the sin, that dude she was caught in the act with would have been right there alongside her. Their motives, and, and we would do good to check our own, the motives of our heart. Like, what are the motives of our heart? Jesus responds to their accusation with silence. He does not say, well, you're right, there's this verse back there in Leviticus, and, but, here's what you're missing. He doesn't engage them in a theological debate or dialogue about sin. His silence is powerful. His silence quiets the noise of the crowd. His silence points them inside of themselves. Make no mistake about it. Silence is not weakness. Silence is not acceptance. Just because I don't preach everything you want me to preach... Silence is not, is not some sort of like cop-out or escape or that's too, I don't want to get into this. That's not what, in, in a world where everybody is so loud about their opinions, where everybody wants to tell you everything they think and how they're right, when everybody wants to announce all the ways you're doing it wrong, sometimes silence is powerful. And Jesus, he does not respond with words. Instead, he kneels down in the ground and he just starts writing something in the sand. It doesn't tell us what he's writing, but I could imagine <laughs> he's drawing a new scene, a new picture, a new reality. He's drawn for a little while, and many people think that maybe in a miraculous way he was drawing the sins that each one of the individuals gathered around with their rocks in hand, ready to kill this woman. Maybe he was outing all the sins they had in their heart. I, I don't know. But I do know that after a while, in the strange response from Jesus, he says to this group of religious leaders with rocks in hand, he says this, let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone. And then he bends back down continues drawing in the sand. What was she thinking in that moment? God, I just want it to be over. Waiting for the impact of a stone thrown at her. Maybe hoping for the impact of a stone thrown on her to end this humiliating misery. 
Maybe she's thinking like, I can't go on from this. How am I ever gonna live? How can I put back the pieces of my life? Maybe it is better that this is just all over. I don't know what she was thinking. But I know what she heard. She heard, boom. As a rock dropped from a hand to the dusty floor of the temple courts. She probably couldn't look up, but she heard, boom. Boom, boom. As one by one, and I love this, starting with those who were older. Maybe they had lived a little bit more life. Maybe they weren't as hard and angry as those who were younger. As each one of them turned their eyes inward and saw the brokenness and sin in their own hearts, they dropped their stones and walked away. And there she is. Now it's just her and Jesus. He stands up in front of her. I imagine it being close, like, like close. And I, and I can't imagine like how she could possibly find the courage to look at the one. If, any, if anyone had the right to throw a stone, if anyone had the right to cast judgment, if anyone could condemn her, it would be Jesus, the perfect one, the Son of God, the one they said was the Messiah. Like if anybody could judge her, it would be him. I don't know, could she look up at him? I don't, I imagine her like, Jesus like lifting her head. Maybe he didn't, but I imagine it. And when she looked up into the face of Jesus, she did not see anger or disappointment, or any of the things you think that God wears on his face when he looks at you after your biggest mistakes. Instead, what she saw is this absolutely beautiful picture of grace. The grace of God is his unmerited favor and pardon for us. It's love that we didn't deserve and couldn't earn. <laughs> he straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? This could be one of the best rhetorical questions in the Bible. Has no one condemned you? Through her quaky voice, no one, sir. And then this line. It's a tough one to swallow for the self-righteous. It's a tough line to swallow for those who are hell-bent on proving how morally better they are than everybody else. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. What's so absolutely beautiful about this response is it was not Jesus minimizing the sin that she had in her life or the brokenness that it had caused. Sin means to miss the mark of God's ideal for us. And guess what? We all do it. 
We've all done it. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned. We've all missed the mark and fall short of the glory of God. It says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Like we have all part, actively participated in this condition of our heart and condition of our world where through our sin and trying to do it my way and the right way and not considering God's way, we've all participated, we've all contributed to the broken pile mess that we now exist in. Every one of us, there's not anybody innocent. See, for these religious leaders, they were about to learn that sin was a bigger problem than just what your neighbor does. Sin is something that we all gotta own. But what I love so much about this, this, the end of this passage is Jesus is not minimizing the sin, but he is maximizing the grace. And here's how to change behavior. If you need some behavior change in your life, the best way to experience that is to have a changed heart. And the best way to have a changed heart is to come face to face with the absolutely incredible, beautiful grace of Jesus Christ as he stands there and smiles at you and says, neither do I. Go leave that junk behind. You are made for more than that. I can forgive you of that and set you free from the burden of sin and death and so that you can experience all that I have designed for you to experience. Read Romans chapter 5 and the end of that passage into the beginning of 6 sometime later because we don't have time for it now. When we minimize sin, we are robbing from ourselves the most beautiful part of this Christian message. It's grace. We all need it. It's what makes our hearts new. It's what heals. And what screams from this passage is that God is for you. Doesn't matter how public or how private your failings are. You may think God could never love me because of what I've done or what I've said. You may be shocked that the walls of the church have not caught on fire yet because you are here. But make no mistake about it. No matter who you are, no matter how bad you have screwed up your life or heart, God is for you. Deuteronomy chapter 30, he says to his people, and it's applicable for us today, it's the heart of God, he says, I set before you life and death. I am your life. Choose me. God is for you. It says in Romans chapter 5, 8, God demonstrated his love, circle it, for you in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. And maybe you've heard that one, but you haven't ever followed it up with verse 17. It says, for God did not send his son into the world 
to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I don't know what kind of spiritual messaging or manipulation you've heard while you've been on this journey. But if you have heard that God hates you, or if that has been implied, you are wrong. If you think that you are not good enough for God, you are wrong. God's heart is for you. It's for you to come back to where you belong, to who he has made you to be. It's for you to accept his beautiful grace and forgiveness. It's for you, but you gotta choose. You gotta choose. Because God is for you, not thus those of you who dress it up good, because God is for the broken, for the lost, for the train wrecked, for the hideous, for the awful, for the worst of us, because God is for, we will be known for what we are for too. That's why it's written. It's, it's not how they tell you to write vision statements when you go to pastor school. Vision statements sound so much more spiritual and better than what we rock as our vision statement here. But you have a pastor with his shoes untied almost every Sunday, so you kind of got to live with it. Here's, here's how no one would tell you to write a vision statement as a church. And this is ours. We are for Jesus. We are for Schuylkill County. We are for your friends and family who don't go to church. And we're for you. But we're for them first. Because the heart of God leaves the 99 in pursuit of the one that is lost. And we will too. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being so absolutely incredible. You are for us. I don't know if there's a whole lot of people that probably have never even heard that. They've never known that. How could they when all the signs in our world seem to be so loud and obnoxious about what everyone is against? We don't want to minimize sin. It's a big deal, but it's an all of us big deal. We don't want to minimize it because we don't want to minimize grace. And your grace, wow, it's just so incredibly beautiful and life-changing. We need it. We're so thankful for it. Don't make us morally superior. Make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.